Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a series right now called Dinner with Jesus. We're looking at how Jesus used tables to change the world. You know, it seems like Jesus did most of his ministry around a table. Why? Because tables are places of welcome, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming the welcome of God. At Table Church, we're all about living that out. So join us as we look at some of the meals that Jesus ate with people and as we learn how those encounters continue to transform people today. And if you need anything at all, be sure to reach out to us at our website, tablechurchdsm.org. God bless, and thanks for listening. Morning, church. Pastor Megan wasn't kidding about those plants. My name's Ivy Sprague, and this morning I'm sharing the scripture with you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Table Church. I am so glad you're here today. It's, it's a great day. Uh, thanks for coming. You know, the Department of Homeland Security, I don't know why they have this on their website, but they do. They have a whole webpage devoted to explaining the benefits of families eating dinner together. I don't know why it's on the DHS site, but it's there. And you can read it. It's got all sorts of great facts about how important it is for families to gather around the dinner table. And it says that it improves relationships, that people tend to eat healthier when they eat at home as a family. It reduces tension in your home. I found that one a little bit questionable, um, but apparently it does. Uh, and, you know, eating meals together as a family has even been linked to getting better grades at school. In fact, research shows that dinnertime conversation is more effective at helping young children's vocabulary develop than even reading aloud to them. You should still read aloud to them, but apparently it's that big of a deal. Now, as Christians, we will happily acknowledge all of the emotional and intellectual benefits of sharing a, a meal together, uh, but for us, we go even further than that. See, for us, there can be something sacramental about sharing a meal. Now, the word sacramental, that simply, well, essentially means that, that God can inhabit that action in a unique sort of way that God can be present in that action or in that moment in a unique, a special sort of way. Now, food is all over the place in the Bible, especially in Jesus' ministry. In fact, somebody told me one time that Jesus did most of his ministry around a table. And I think Jesus knew the transforming power 
of a table. And it's no coincidence that the night he was arrested, the last thing Jesus wanted to do, he even said, I have eagerly desired and looked forward to sharing this meal. The last thing he did the night he was arrested with his disciples was eat a meal with them. And now for 2,000 years, Christians have come to the table in order to remember Jesus' sacrifice, but also to experience God in a unique way. It is sacramental. The series that we're in right now is called Dinner with Jesus, and we're looking at how Jesus used tables to change the world. A lot of the most significant moments in the Gospels happen when Jesus is eating a meal with somebody, and today is no exception. There may not be a table involved in this particular passage, but there certainly is a big meal involved. And what this story shows us is that in order to welcome people well, we have to make time for them. Now, in the last couple weeks of this series, you might remember, one of the things we learned was that Jesus came to proclaim the welcome of God. In Luke chapter 4, he stands up in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and this is his first public act in his ministry. This is how Jesus launches his public ministry. And the last line of that passage from Isaiah says that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what we learned is that you can also translate that word favor as welcome. Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's welcome to all people. And so that for us in this, in this series, and maybe even kind of as a congregation, as Table Church, this is the lens through which we see Jesus' ministry. He came to proclaim the Lord's welcome, and that's what we're supposed to do as well. Now in our passage, Jesus and his disciples were very tired. They'd had a long day of ministry, Verses 10 and 11 kind of give us a clue to how they probably felt. It says, then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves, by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. They're trying to get away. They're trying to get a little alone time. It's supposed to be a staff retreat, you know, but the crowds would have none of it. But instead of complaining about it, it says that Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is often characterized by three actions that Jesus often performed, preaching, healing, and delivering. Read the first like couple chapters of Mark sometime and you'll just see Jesus cycling through these three things over and over. First he's preaching, now he's healing somebody, now he's delivering, now he's healing somebody again, then he's preaching, now he's delivering somebody from evil. Like that's just the three things that Jesus often did in his ministry and our, that verse I just read, it includes two of them. It says that he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God that's preaching and he healed those who needed healing. So you got two of the three right here in our passage. But you know what? I think that we need to add a fourth. We need to adjust our theology a little bit and I'm gonna make the case that we need to add a fourth characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to preach, to heal, to deliver, and to eat. Because that's what he did all over the place. And look, I'm only half joking. Meals were so important to Jesus that one has to wonder if it shouldn't be one of those things. People even accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Anyway, Jesus welcomes the crowds, but the day is wearing on and the disciples start to see a problem. They say late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Look, the, this point in the story has, 
has a lot of modern day application for us. You see, the disciples, I don't think they meant any harm to these people. Um, at least in Luke's telling of the story, it seems clear that they weren't, they weren't upset at the crowds. In fact, they were concerned for them. They were like, it's getting dark. We got thousands of people here. We're in the middle of nowhere. Jesus, maybe, maybe we should start thinking about you know, dismissing the crowd, go home, go into the towns, go find somewhere to stay, go find something to eat. Um, you know, so often we want to outsource our hospitality. And that's kind of what the disciples are doing here. Hey, you know, Jesus, let them go take care of themselves. But Jesus is going to come to us and he's going he's gonna to say this. He's going to say, you give them something to eat. You see, Jesus is going to push us toward connection, which is a message that we really, really need to hear. And this shows us the incarnational nature of the Christian faith. Incarnation. You know what that word is? Incarnation means in the flesh. Incarne. I think that's meat in Spanish. Carne. Incarnation. It's what happens at Christmas. Jesus is God incarnate. God in the flesh. Our faith is incarnational. It flows from the fact that God himself came in the flesh and sends us to the world in the flesh. Listen, at the heart of our faith is this powerful point, that presence is powerful. God did not send a check or wave a magic wand from a distance. God came in the flesh. Listen, almost everything in the modern world is pushing against incarnation. Everything in our world is making it easier and more attractive for us to not be present. To do everything from a distance or through a screen or digitally, it is becoming so easy. It's becoming really, really hard, in fact, to do things. We're start, we're, it's getting to the point where we don't see the point of it anymore. But our faith is unique. It says that presence is powerful. The Pew Research Center asked people how their priorities changed after COVID. They did a, a large study and they specifically asked if anything has become less of a priority to people after COVID. So come out of COVID, what's, what's less important to you now than it was pre-COVID? 4% of people said that money and material possessions are now less important to them than before. 9% of people said that work is less important to them than it was before. However, by far the biggest response, according to 34% of people, over a third of the respondents, they said that the number one thing that people care less about since COVID is socializing with their friends. That is the thing that we have to, coming out of COVID, we said, you know what? Of all the things that I think I can do without, I want to see my friends less. That's the number one thing that has happened in people's lives since COVID. 
Now, this lines up, honestly, I think with probably many of our experiences and what you've observed and certainly what I've observed. I mean, part of my job is to try to get people connected, to get people into each other's lives because, right, we're in incarnational faith and presence is powerful. So part of my job is trying to get people connected. And I've noticed, I've been in ministry for I know, 16 years, I think. I've noticed, and I, part of that was good, significant of that was like small groups and discipleship ministry. So I've been around the block on this a few times. And I've noticed that uh, the last couple of years, getting people to connect has been like getting a teenager, teenager out of bed. Like it's just been tough. However, I will say this. Table Church, you're breaking the statistics with this dinner groups thing. Like there's been an avalanche of signups for dinner groups, which is really, really cool. And so maybe things are changing now. I don't know. But if you haven't signed up for a dinner group yet, we have now got almost everybody in groups and we haven't contacted you with them yet because I wanted to give one last opportunity for anyone who hasn't signed up. You want to be in a dinner group, sign up. Dinner groups are just, we're putting three units, three households together, and you're going to take turns having a meal together, and it's going to be a great way to connect with folks that you uh, may not know, or at least not know very well from your church. Just write dinner groups on your connection card, and we will get you plugged into that. So anyway, we've got this isolation kind of idea or attitude um, that has sort of taken over our culture. To the point that after COVID, the, the thing that we wanted to keep was seeing people less, specifically our friends less, like socializing with our friends less. But here's the problem. Our faith is an incarnational faith. That means isolation, I like to think of it as this. I call it enacted heresy. You know, enacted heresy. You know what heresy is? It's like when you believe something that's not orthodox, not, uh, not core to the Christian faith. Now, you may not be believing something that's, you know, bonkers, but you're doing, you're acting, you're living out something that is contrary to one of the core tenets of our faith. It's like enacted heresy. Now, imagine that research showed a rising number of Christians started to believe that Jesus is the reincarnation of the Egyptian sun god, Ra. You know, like this just started taking over our churches. I know it sounds crazy, but actually crazier things have happened. In fact, there was a study recently that said that three out of four Christians believe that the Son of God was created. Just so you know, that is a heresy. The Son of God is eternal, has always existed, and was never created. Just make sure the table church isn't part of that statistic. Now, it sounds hard to believe that that, that that would ever happen. And if it were to happen, pastors everywhere would be going crazy. Um, you know, we'd be tearing our hair out and trying to figure out what's going on. How could Christians start believing that Jesus is the reincarnation of Egyptian God? Like, what, what is happening here? But, you know, maybe I'm overstating the case here. But a large number of Christians don't see why they can't just watch online don't see why they really have to bother with getting together with other Christians. It's because we've been discipled by isolationist modern principles more than we have Christianity. It's enacted heresy. It's not okay. Enacted heresy, I've made that up. It might be too strong of a phrase. Maybe it's a little absurd to, to compare watching church online to believing that Jesus is an Egyptian God. It probably is absurd. But before we dismiss it, remember, Jesus prayed in his longest prayer in the Gospels, for his followers to be unified. Most of Paul's letters are about trying to get Christians to be unified. 
The Bible explicitly says, do not forsake meeting together. Let's not understate what this verse, what this idea means to our faith. It is an incarnational faith. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about coming to church on Sunday. Uh, you could make a case that even this isn't incarnational enough. I'm talking about being in each other's lives on a daily basis or a regular basis. That's what we mean here. And so Jesus says, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. The disciples say, well, we only have five loaves and two fish, but you know what? Five plus two equals seven. Seven's like a magic number in the Bible, right? It's like the, the biblical number of perfection and wholeness, and so you know something crazy is about to happen because it's seven. Now remember, this whole thing was an interruption. Jesus and the disciples, they tried to get away from the crowds. The crowds followed them, but Jesus uses this interruption to show the crowd something about God's heart for them. And I think it shows us this, that interruptions can be opportunities for God to show us something new. You might even say it like this. When we become interruptible, we become susceptible to God. When we become interruptible, we become susceptible to God. Now, so many of the greatest encounters with God, so many of the most important moments in the Bible happened because people were willing to be interrupted. It says that Moses, quote, turns aside to see the burning bush, a young Samuel is woken up in the night by God, and of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, that whole story is about being interrupted, you know? Look, interruptions are often rich with opportunities for God to do something unexpected. Christians in the fourth century, they constructed the earliest hospitals specifically to care for strangers, people they didn't know who were sick. They practically looked for interruptions just so that they could meet needs. The, the pagan emperor at the time, uh, Julian was his name, he did not like the fact that the Christians were so good at helping others. In fact, they were so good at it that more and more people were becoming Christians because of this, this upside-down, backwards lifestyle that they were living. And so Julian goes to his pagan priests and he says, Hey guys, I need you to copy the Christians a little bit more because we're losing to them. Here's what he says, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Christians support not only their own poor but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. He's saying, guys, copy the Christians, they're beating us. And as Christianity spread throughout the empire, something, something interesting happened. When Christianity spreads, so do the resources available to the churches. And the ancient theologian, John Chrysostom, he, uh, he noticed that some of his congregants had stopped practicing incarnational hospitality, had stopped practicing personal hospitality because now there was a church fund for it. Like they had a budget line they had a benevolence fund. It's crazy how so many of the same issues we have now happened thousands of years ago. Like they had a budget line for it and so people were like, oh cool, I don't need to worry about it anymore. Just, you know, give him money out of, the, out of the common fund. And John Chrysostom sees this and he's like, no, 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 this is a problem. Even if the poor could be fed from the common funds, he says this, but can that benefit you? If another man prays, does it follow that you are not bound to pray? 
Can you imagine if we were like, oh, somebody else, somebody else is going to pray. I'm good. I don't, need, I don't need to cover that in prayer. See, for Chrysostom, the point of it isn't just to help people, but that you might be helped as well. Because when you are interruptible, you are susceptible to God. God uses those moments not only to help someone else, he uses them to change you. Historian Christine Pohl says that for those early Christians, she says hospitality was an essential part of Christian identity. It was an essential part of Christian identity. Welcoming the stranger, the poor, the sick was simply what it meant to be Christian. And church historian Alan Kreider writes about how for the earliest Christians, when people questioned their faith, they, their primary defense was not with argument, but to simply point to their actions. I'm not saying there weren't early church writers who, who didn't write really magnificent defenses, but, but really the primary thing that people would do is like, hey, Christian, prove your faith is true. And they'd be like, how do you explain this? Look at all of the things. Look at how the world is being turned upside down by this revolution called the way of Jesus. The second century philosopher Athenagoras wrote that Christians, quote, do not rehearse words, but show forth good deeds. It was their lives that witnessed to the truth of their faith. I didn't ask for her permission to share this, but many of you know Jamie Sosnowski. Uh, one hot summer day a few years ago, she saw a couple on the side of the road that were clearly struggling, so she pulled over and invited them into her van and helped them. And now Isaac and Frosine are regular parts, members of, uh, attenders of Table Church. Like, you just never know when, if you're interruptible, you are susceptible to God doing something really remarkable. That almost rhymed. Didn't even plan it. Christians have noticed a pattern in our text, and it, and it pops up over and over again in Jesus' life. Often when there is a meal with Jesus, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus will do the same four things. Notice this. Jesus will take the bread, he will bless it, he will break it, and then he will give it. And so you see this pattern pop up over and over in the Gospels. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, and gives it. And that's what happens in our passage today. And I want you to see it in the text because it's important. Here's what it says in verse 16. Taking the five loaves... That's taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks, that's blessing, and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So taken, blessed, broken, given. That same pattern happens also in the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, he, he uh, I'm sorry, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. But when he does this, he also says, this is my body, which means that Jesus is the one who is taken, blessed, broken, and given. And then Jesus, or readers of Luke's gospel, they would see this idea of Jesus giving not just bread and fish, but giving himself to the crowds. And then the early Christians would come along and they would start to identify themselves as the body of Christ. And so they would see themselves as ones who are to be taken, blessed, 
broken, and given. The, the spiritual writer, Henry Nouwen, he talked a lot about these four words. He says, these words summarize my life as a Christian because I am called to become bread for the world, bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given. So I want to talk about those four words just real quick. Number one, we are taken. That means that he has set us aside for a special purpose. He has called us to do something to have a special use. Second, we are blessed. That means that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and endowed with the presence of God. Third, we are also broken. To be a follower of Jesus means to suffer. And that suffering is often for the sake of others. Just like our master Jesus, we take upon ourselves the suffering of others. To be Christian is to be broken. And finally, we are given. We do not exist for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. And when we go from here, we go into a world that we have been sent into in the flesh in order to serve. Listen, when, when we knew that we were going to come to, uh, come to Des Moines to plant a church, we, we had decided that we would come here, but we hadn't figured out anything else. Like, we didn't know the name of the church or anything like that. And I've shared this story before, but this is kind of one of those, like, I don't know, foundational table church stories. How did we get our name? So if you don't pray with your imagination, you should try it. One of my favorite things to do is to, is to pray with my imagination. And imagine, I, I mean, I have a place that I like to go to with Jesus. I, it's like a giant medieval library, and I'm sitting at a table, and Jesus is across the table, and, and, and we talk. And, um, and this particular night, I was lying in bed, and I was praying like this. And I, I said, Jesus, what should we name this church? And I just saw him kind of glance down at the table and then look back at me. And, and it's like I, I just knew it in a moment. The name had come, Table Church there's room. But what I've learned since planting is that in a divided world, in an antagonistic world, in a post-COVID world, it is hard to make room in our hearts for others. It is hard to inconvenience ourselves, to be interruptible. We are so busy. Our family, I think, has a thing on the calendar every day in May. Like it's absurd, you know, we're just going all over the place. It's tough. And so we have to make it a priority. We have to push ourselves because we've been taken and blessed and broken and given for the sake of the world. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So who can you welcome this week? That's the point that hopefully you, you received an index card on your way in with your connection card. Do you have an index card? All right, if you don't have an index card, raise your hand and I think somebody will see it and bring you one. But if you have an index card, this is where you might want to pull it out because we're going to play a song and I just want you to take the first minute or so uh, just to say, God, who do I need to welcome this week? Who is the person in my life that you're asking me to extend hospitality to in a personal level, to be interrupted for? Who is that person? And if you pray about it, I think there's a good chance that God will tell you a name, that God will tell you who that person is. Somebody who you maybe wouldn't normally invite, but God seems to have placed them on your heart. And so we're going to spend a little time, take a minute or so in prayer, um, and write the name on your card. And that's, that card is not for anyone else to see. It's just for you. 
Um, and then you can welcome them in and extend the invitation. Um, and then we, we're going we're gonna to take communion today. We just did it a couple weeks ago. You can't take it too much, though, so we're going to do it again. Um, and as you come, when you're writing that name on, on your card, you're asking God, who do I need to be taken, blessed, broken, and given for? And then you get to come to the table and remember that Jesus was taken, blessed, broken, and given for you. That's what he did the night that he was betrayed at that final supper with his disciples. It's all gluten-free bread, so if you have that um, allergy, you don't need to worry. But it's going to be kind of informal, um, kind of loose. Just once you have spent a minute or so praying, feel free to come during this song and just take the elements. I'm not going to you know, come back up here and tell you to go. You just go whenever, whenever you're ready, all right? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body given for you. And he, took some, he took the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new, my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Whenever you drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, today, this morning, we remember you. We remember your sacrifice. But more than that, Lord, we want to enact it again in our lives. I'm not saying we're going to be crucified. I'm saying we're going to be taken, blessed, broken, and given. And even if in some small way, all that means for us is to invite someone over for dinner, Lord, I do believe that there's something powerful about that, that you've infused a sort of sacredness to it. And so empower us like you did the early Christians to in, be interruptible in order to be susceptible to you. I ask, Lord, that as we come to your table now, that we would just be moved by the fact that you have done the very thing for us that you are asking us to do for others, but you did it to the very extreme possibilities. So we're thankful, God, that you came, that you took on our flesh died and rose again and now that you reign at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, may your spirit dwell in our hearts as we come. We love you in your name. Amen.